Good evening and welcome back to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. This is not Lauren, this is Brian in Buffalo, New York, US of A. And with me, as always, is Lauren from Swansea. How are you, Brian? I'm sweating my gananotrophins off. (laughs) It's hot, Lauren. Yeah, it's hot here too. We've had a really nice day. I've got a tan because I took Corey and Theo down to um down to uh, the the well it's not really a beach it's an estuary and they've built a really nice park there because there's lots of land for them to run around and we went down there witnessed a war between two ice cream men the, the ice cream men were fighting well there's one it's um like a little catering pod and it sells like sandwiches and coffees and stuff like that and then there's an ice cream van but the catering pod sells little tubs of ice cream and the ice cream man wasn't happy that um they were selling ice cream and they've been there for years mind they they've they've been there for a few years now and um they were there before the park was there because it's a nice place for people to go for a walk and um so the council said no he couldn't stop them from selling ice cream and then he decided that he was going to start selling food but then he couldn't get the permit to sell hot food so sucks to be him i just want to know if punches were thrown no no but i don't know what happened though because Corey and theo go off um i was sitting in the park reading my i was reading vulcana um and um Corey and Theo go off to play football and then all of a sudden they're sitting there and somebody's grandmother had bought them slush drinks <laughs> the hell? Even I know so I gave the that little was, boy that's that bizarre I know they'd made a friend and the grand was getting hit was getting the little boy a slush drink and then she bought them a slush drink I was like um that's weird but um I gave the little boy boy some of the picnic as well because I um, I took a picnic down with me so the so I gave the boy some food. (laughs) You want to know how weird my week's been? No. No. (laughs) Because it might have been super weird. Well, I found a wooden shoe in my toilet. What? What? Yeah, I knew my toilet was clogged. (laughs) (laughs) Bad joke. Oh, that was good. That's all I got. Although I did learn something really cool this week. Watching, um, you know, I, I watch a lot of documentaries and stuff, Lauren. Yeah. People's head off with the guillotine that would still be alive for a few minutes and the eyes would look around. Did yeah, that's know? pretty fun. Yeah. They did you know them. that the pupils are the last part of your body working before you die? Yeah, because they're lenses and they'd just be reacting to light, wouldn't they? Did you know that? No, but it makes sense. It's because they dilate. Uh. <laughs> all right, all right. I know you hate my jokes. But you know what you're not going to hate? You're not going to hate tonight's show because we got one of our favorite people in the world coming back on tonight. The great mm. author, crime historian, television presenter, former trial lawyer, and just all-around sweet person, Janice Wilson, is coming on tonight, and we're going to discuss the infamous kidnapping and murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr. and the subsequent trial. 
And Lauren, you being uh, one of them, one of them foreigners, you might not know much about the Lindbergh case, do you? No, not much. I know, like, um, I know that I know roughly what it is, and I know it very well from the um, Family Guy cutaways. <laughs> well, you're in for a treat with the rest of the audience tonight, then, because we're going to take a deep dive into the the case, the trial the background and uh i can't think of anybody better to talk about this with than janice um who was a great attorney speaking of attorneys lauren do you know what an attorney's favorite drink is no i don't a sapina colada <laughs> oh dear what <laughs> all right yeah i know the jokes aren't always that good lauren but uh, what, what are you gonna do i could talk about the bathroom buddy some more Oh, no, please. Please leave that be. No, okay. I did, uh, I did, this is true, I'm not, this is not a joke. Um, I did go on a very strict diet. Uh, I've been on it for about three weeks now. Uh, you know, trying to get my, all my medical conditions under control, my diabetes under control. So, uh, if I'm a little irritable, it's because I haven't eaten any carbs or sugars in like three weeks. Okay, Lauren? Oh, gosh. I thought, well, I thought they always um, recommended a gradual reduction of things rather than to completely cut them out all in one go. It's, well, I mean, I'm not saying that there's zero, like, very, very minimal um carbs and sugars but uh it's been a pretty strict diet and it's it, it's you know it's a little annoying but uh i'll be a little irritable so if i fucking start yelling at you that's why <laughs> oh wow well however this is true i went to the the that, you know because i got that that thing called the internets where you can look yeah. stuff up on the google machine mm-hmm and I went to the diabetes awareness website, and the first question it asked me is if I accept cookies. Motherfucker. <laughs> and you on a very strict diet there. Yeah. And they're trying to give me uh, cookies. I like cookies. Cookie mm-hmm. good with milk from cow me. Wish me had a cookie now. Well, I mean, I, I, I was one Christmas, um, I was going, cause I, I worked, used to work with a girl, her son is, is diabetic and I was going to get him like, um, diabetic chocolate. And she said, that is the worst thing you can give to a diabetic is diabetic chocolate. So please stay away from the diabetic chocolate. Why is it the worst thing you can give to a diabetic? Because it is sweetener, which has a laxative effect and it can, and yeah if you're if you're injecting insulin it can cause you to give yourself too much or too little insulin because you're it causes you to have an upset stomach poop mm-hmm. it makes you poop yeah. oh i'm writing down i gotta get some of these diabetic chocolates <laughs> Go to go to Amazon and look for the sugar-free gummy bears. That is it. No, don't bring that up again. My mother is obsessed with those gummy bear reviews. 
She sends me them. She wants to buy some. Oh, Lauren, do me a favor. I think that we haven't done this for a while in the show. Why don't you pull up some of those reviews and read them live on the air? Shall I? I think you shall. Okay. I, want, I want to hear a couple. Oh, pick a couple choice ones. Like, read, you know, pick your favorites. Um, oh, we're so immature. So, right. Sorry, I'm just bringing it up now. Okay. And again, tell the audience what we're going to be listening to. So these are, so I don't ever remember bringing them up in um conversation but i must have done um they're sugar-free haribo gummy bears and um if you eat a lot of them and i don't mean like a whole bag full if you eat more than a handful you know five or six they have they have a terrible effect on your digestive system yes so so this is one and I'm choosing it not because I've read it before, but because the title of it is See You in Hell. <laughs> Harry <laughs> Bow Sugar. <laughs> okay, so the, the title is See You in Hell, Harry Bow Sugar Free Gummy Bears. So the, the um, reviewer sets the scene. It was the last class of the semester and the final exam was worth 30% of our grade. After a late study session, I felt confident, but I had to decide between sleeping in or cooking breakfast. My, my eyelids chose sleep. My stomach, late, stomach later regretted this decision, and after several uncomfortable stomach growls, I finally decided to make a quick stop by the campus bookstore and grab a snack before my test. Since the semester was ending and everyone was going home for the summer, a lot of items were on sale, including the snacks and candy that they kept at the front. Being in the hungry state that I was in, it felt only logical to pick the largest, yet least expensive candy in order to get more bang for my buck. And, the, and there they sat, two bags of Haribo sugar-free gummy bears. Dun, 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 dun. What a deal, I thought naively. I would eat one bag before my test and one bag afterwards. Oh, dear. As I walked to class, I gleefully chewed on those abominable little bastards and where the acme <laughs> that they were soon to unleash upon my poor, poor anus. <laughs> <laughs> I sat down at my desk as the professor informed us that due to issues with cheating in the past, restroom breaks would be prohibited until the completion of the exam. <laughs> I'll give you 10 minutes to use the restroom now. This will be your last chance any takers the demon bears hadn't released their unholy necromancy upon my stomach yet so my few so in my moment of arrogant foolishness i remained seated still munching on those miniature bear-shaped bombs <laughs> <laughs> after the students wise enough to take the professor's offer had returned the professor handed out the test i was six questions in when it happened it started first it started subtly at first, almost like a slight tingling sensation in my lower abdomen. I thought nothing of it, assuming my intestines were just doing their thang. Little did I know that my intestines were desperately trying to warn me of the horror that was on the horizon. 
By question nine, it happened again, but this time it was followed by a sharp pain, as if those infernal hellions had orchestrated an attack upon my colon. I fought to contain the groan that tried escaping my lips. It was at this point I began to panic. Something was going horribly wrong, and I needed to get through this test before it got any worse. By 1914, my worst fear was upon me. The Satan bears, burning hot, liquidly dark magic, crashed against my anal sphincter like a tidal wave. I was able to close the hatch just in time, but those relentless, toxic bears beat against it like orcs, breaking down the doors of Helm's Deep. I knew I wouldn't be able to do so much as shift in my suit without risking a breach. I kept fighting through my exam, clenching my cheeks with all my might. Beads of sweat began rolling down my neck. Suddenly a loud, (laughs) gurgling war cry came from my belly and the entire class lifted their heads. At this point, nothing mattered except expelling this ungodly presence from my bowels. With 15 questions left, I promptly... Wrote C for every answer and ran out of the classroom. My professor yelled something, but I was too preoccupied with a volcanic eruption that needed to take place before I could find sweet, sweet relief. I burst into the restroom like the Kool-Aid man and behold, the handicap stall was empty. Sun rays from the adjacent window shone upon it as if it were a gift from God himself. It took me It took me less than 0.5 seconds to undo my belt buckle, pull down my pants and finally relax my weary buttocks upon the toilet seat. It took absolutely no effort to expel this demon. No, I wouldn't think so. (laughs) Almost immediately, the floodgates of hell were open and the damned liquefied souls of the entire bag's worth of gummy bears cried as they burned through my sphincter and into the watery abyss below. I've never felt so felt such simultaneous relief and anguish in my life. After 30 more minutes of this, I immediately went over and dug a hole in my backyard and burned the remaining bag of gummy bears. Oh. I with this. Do not, I repeat, do not eat these spawns of Satan. Not only did they cause me to fail my final test, the anguish, anguish I experienced is something I wouldn't wish upon anyone, not even my worst enemy. The only place these God-forsaken hell bears belong are deep about buried deep below the Earth's surface. Okay, well, first off, burying the second bag was a big mistake because, you know, I would have tried it again just to see if it was the bears. You see, might be blaming the bears for no reason. We don't know that it was the bears that caused this, do we, Lauren? There's a there is another one that I'm intrigued by, um, and I will. I, I don't think we've got time to read it now. But the review is, hell holds no surprises for me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next week we'll read another one. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think this would be a great marketing tool for the bathroom buddy. You it's get a free bathroom buddy with every bag of these bears. <laughs> these fucking hell bears. And then there's somebody complaining that there's a hole in the bag. I think that person was saved. There's a hole in the bag? Yeah. An asshole. <laughs> no, but she said um she said that uh, she she's she's hopefully the the end the the end line of the review is hopefully this bag wasn't poisoned. Keep please keep me in your thoughts and prayers. So she's gonna eat them anyway. Yeah. Who the fuck eats the open bag? I know. 
I I don't know. That kind of disturbs me. So I think uh, I think maybe it's time to go on to today in history. What do you think? Yes. All right. Well, my day in history, I chose specifically because of the fact that I'm sweating my balls off. Today in history, May 29th, 1942, Bing Crosby records Irving Berlin's White Christmas, which becomes the best-selling single of all time, with estimates of over 100 million copies sold. What do you think about that, Lauren? I think that's amazing because it's halfway, it's nearly halfway through the year, so. But the fact that it's hot as balls and he's singing White Christmas and so convincingly, you believed he was in the middle of the winter thinking of Christmas. 100 million copies of that shit sold. But that was today, 1942. Did you know that was the best selling single of all time? No, I didn't. Yeah, pretty impressive. 100 million copies. I bet you own a copy of it. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe it's on Spotify. I'm sure it's on Spotify. All right, give me your day in history, Lauren. Hit me with your best shot. So I just like it because it's interesting and i think we should do a show on it but my today in history the 29th of may 1765 patrick henry founding father of the united states it um gave his historic speech against the stamp act answering a cry of treason with if this be treason make the most of it yeah patrick henry you know that's uh that, that'd be that'd be a good day in history but uh did he sell 100 million copies of that fucking quote? <laughs> no, I just like it because it, it had treason. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a fan of, like, all things to do with treason and stuff. You think those little gummy bears are treasonous? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Maybe they now, are. Would that, do you think that would be good for constipated people? Like, would it be better than X-Lax? Well, you'd have to be very careful because it 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 wouldn't like it it seems like it causes diarrhea. <laughs> Stop it, Beavers! <laughs> oh, diarrhea! Yeah, um, I know. Diarrhea is not funny. It happens. We all get it. And on that note, Lauren, what do you say? I fire up the magic interview box. Yes. It's the magic interview box. <laughs> if anybody can follow a wonderful poop story, it would be Janice Wilson. Because she is so smart and funny and wonderful, even though she's very short. I'll probably make a couple short jokes. I can't help it. Um, when I first met Janice... I had actually recognized her from some of her television appearances and she's really tiny. I'm six foot five. You got to remember I'm pretty tall guy. And when I went over to talk to her, I mean, it was just so funny how much smaller she was than me. And I said, Hey, aren't you on this? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, you're much shorter than I thought. 
and she laughed the most infectious laugh. What did she say? Oh, she just laughed the most infectious laugh. And I'm, I'm going to try to get her to laugh a couple times on the show because you'll all fall in love with her laugh, too. So, Lauren, why don't you flip the switch and we'll be right back with the great Janice Wilson. Oh, Lauren, 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 am I excited for today's show? And do you know why? I don't know, Brian. Why are you excited? Because one of our favorite people in the entire world is back with us. The great, <laughs> legendary Janice Wilson is joining us again. The former trial attorney, the, 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 the teacher, the writer, the historian, the television presenter. Yes, <laughs> Janice of, uh, what, what, what are some of those shows? Deadly Affairs, uh, Killer couples, basically any of those Discovery Channel shows where, like, someone kills their spouse, they call Janice. And I want to know what your husband thinks of that, first off. Well, a friend of ours suggested that he sleep with one eye open. (laughs) He has begun to do that, but I have to tell you, it's pretty creepy to see it in the middle of the night. Oh, I can imagine. I uh, Did I ever show you the tattoo that Sarah has of Oppenheimer on her arm that is, like, so perfectly realistic that it stares at me at night so she's not allowed to sleep in the bedroom anymore? <laughs> well, that's interesting. I'm a, a kind of an Oppenheimer fan myself, but I'm not crazy about what happened with his research. No, and, and this is going to be so weird to listeners because I'm about to send you a picture on text that the, the audience will never see because, um, as you know, this is an audio-only show. But I'm going to show you, Janice, this 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 um, tattoo that stares at you while you try to sleep. <laughs> and why she's not allowed in the bedroom any longer. Uh, it's in here somewhere. But but anyway, before I even get to that, how are you? What's going on? What's new and exciting? Well, I've just finished the first draft of my second novel, and I'm busy trying to go through that. Um, since I last spoke with you, I sold my house in Baltimore, and I moved back to Pennsylvania. And, you moved uh, closer to me? How could I not? Uh, I mean, exactly. It was available, and I couldn't turn it down. <laughs> so you left the great city of Baltimore. I thought you loved Baltimore. I not as much as I love Philadelphia, and I'm outside Philly now. I I'm I love Philadelphia. Yeah, Philly is a great town. I'm closer to Pittsburgh, but uh, I like Philly. I'm in Coatesville, you know, in the, around the Lancaster area. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Now, I want to tell the audience that today's topic is one we've gotten requests on quite a few times. And you are are in a very unique position to discuss this because apparently I found out recently you did discuss this as part of a big thing. 
And that is the trial over the famous Lindbergh kidnapping. Quite of true. 1932. When I was with the Pennsylvania Bar Institute, we put on a program which was a mock trial of Hauptman. Bruno Richard Hauptman, who was tried and convicted and executed in the kidnapping and murder of Charles Lindbergh's firstborn son. So we put that on to show other lawyers how to try a case. And it was a big step forward for me because I've tried very few criminal cases in my life. So this was a mock trial and people got continuing legal education credits for it. And we had a Supreme Court justice sit in as the trial judge. So it was pretty exciting. Now, before we even go into how the case was tried, um, Lauren, you being one of them furriners, <laughs> are, are you familiar with the, uh, the, the Lindbergh case and just how big a deal Charles Lindbergh was in America at the time? I understand how big of a deal it was. I know of it in context with, context with other kidnappings of rich people because it's normally brought up when you have um, documentaries on Patty Hearst. Yes. Yes. But I don't know it as well. I know it mostly from documentaries when it's brought up in context to others and from cutaways in Family Guy. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think a lot of our audience knows it more from Family Guy than from history books. Don't, isn't that sad, Janice? It is indeed. Well, do you want to give a little background on, the, um, on just who Lindbergh was? Yes, and he why was, he was such a big deal. He was an American icon who then, in my opinion, tarnished his reputation completely because he was a strong anti-Semite. And he, he opposed American in, intervention in World War II. But Lindbergh was famous for being the first person to fly solo across the Atlantic. And he did this. He was greeted in Paris with uh, a lot of hoopla. People lined the streets. They threw confetti. They were thrilled. And he became, of course, an American hero as a result of this. And Congress even specially awarded him a Medal of Honor. So in January of 1932, he and his wife, Ann Morrow Lindbergh, moved to a place in New Jersey with, surrounded by 390 acres. I mean, this was no hovel. And um, it was such a big deal to have Lucky Lindy, as he was known, in the area that the newspapers published a schematic of his house showing where the child's nursery was situated on the second floor. And... Um, so on the night of March the 1st, 1932, the baby was put to bed. His name was Charles Augustus Lindbergh, Jr. The baby was put to bed by his nanny, Betty Gow, Scottish lady. And that was at 8 o'clock. About 10 o'clock, she went to check on the child, and he was not there. What she found instead of the baby was a ransom note. 
And I, 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 this sounds terrible to say, but you briefly hit on it. And, and this is something that, especially at the time, was not publicized. But history really needs to show that Charles Lindbergh, for as great an aviator as he was and an innovator he was, he was a piece of shit human being. I couldn't agree more, and I know that's not going to win me any popularity, because he was deemed a real American hero. In fact, even after all of his anti-Semitic remarks and he fell out of grace for a while, Dwight Eisenhower made him a general in the Air Corps. So all was forgiven because he brought such glory to America. But... I would wonder really how people reacted in that house when they found out the baby was missing. And that may sound like a strange question to pose, but Charles Lindbergh had once taken his infant son and hid him in a closet and then went to his wife and and the nanny and said, the baby's missing. And they were frantic and they ran around the house for about 10 minutes and then he sort of threw his hands up in an April Fool's gesture and brought the baby out and showed that he was fine. Yeah. He was just not a good guy. (laughs) In America, we try to gloss over things to make certain people heroes. And, and I'm not trying to be a revisionist historian who says, you know, I know it's very trendy nowadays to say people are too woke and they're trying to destroy history by tearing down statues. Well, first off, agree with me or not, Janice, fuck you. Civil War statues shouldn't be erected. You don't erect statues to the losers of wars, especially when they're anti-American. You don't erect statues to traitors. Traitorous losers, exactly. And the Confederacy was made of traitors who eschewed their loyalty to the United States of America. Yeah, yeah. and Lindbergh was a Nazi sympathizer yes, during the war, a eugenicist. Now that plays into it, folks will say, so what a lot of people. Yeah, but you know, he believed in eugenics and he had a son that was not what you would call the most healthy human being and the son bore his name, which would have been a total humiliation to him. That's correct. The child had a, a form of rickets, which meant that his bones didn't heal well. And this went on to lead, in my view, to the child's death. I doubt very strongly that the kidnappers intended to murder the child. Exactly. And I, I, I don't want to step on your toes as the legal expert here, but I'll just ask you flat out before we even get into the trial. Do you believe that Hauptman was railroaded? I believe that Hauptman was involved. I don't believe by any stretch of the imagination that he did it alone. I think that Hauptman who made a lot of stupid mistakes such as hiding the cash in his own house, um, would um, would have thought that he could take this 30-pound infant and get down 
a rickety ladder of his own creation safely without someone assisting him. So yeah. Yeah, I, I do believe that I don't believe that the case was fixed. I don't believe it was rigged. I do believe Houtman was guilty. You know, I do too. And a lot of people who really hate on Lindbergh nowadays try to say Houtman was a patsy and he was innocent and it was just, I don't believe that. I, I don't believe he was innocent, but like you said, I don't think he necessarily acted alone. Well, and, and I, I think the Oh, what was that, Lauren? So he could still be still have been a patsy, but have drawn into it for some either financial gain or reputational gain or some sort of gain. Well, you're right. Yeah, he could have been a patsy as far as all the blame goes. But I, I do believe he was involved. And Janice, I just want for the audience and for Lauren, because like I said, you know, you're not American, so you didn't grow up hearing about this incessantly. To set the scene, this was um, a mansion, like you said. This was an estate. This was a big... First off, most people didn't even know they were going to be there when they were, let alone the exact location of this child's room in this giant mansion. And the ladder used to scale it, like you had hit on, was... what well, You can look up pictures online, folks. This is a rickety homemade ladder that doesn't look like it could hold anybody. And in fact, it did not because it split as someone was descending from the second floor nursery carrying the baby. And I hope I'm not blowing the conclusion here, but <laughs> the baby did not survive that. What I believe happened and what the attorney general argued in his opening statement was that the ladder was rickety and the kidnappers were carrying 30 more pounds on the way down than on the way up. So what and what they believe happened is, and, and it makes a lot of sense to me, that they were descending the ladder, or at least one of them was, the ladder began to wobble and come apart. The baby was dropped on his head and it cracked his skull open. Now, this is this is not conjecture. The body was subsequently found and an autopsy was performed, forgive me, on what was left of the child after he'd been in the woods for six weeks. But... Um, he did have this brittle bone condition. Now, as a matter of law, that does not help the defendant one single bit. Um, this was a death in the commission of a felony, but it may be interesting to note that Hauptman was never charged with kidnapping. No. Because there was no such crime as kidnapping until the Lindbergh baby was snatched. And then the legislature quickly enacted a bill against kidnapping in 1932, and they amended it in 1935. Yeah, see, I think that's another fact that a lot of people don't realize. 
is the cultural impact of this case wasn't just this horrific, you know, kidnapping and death of this poor child or the fact that it happened to an American icon. This case changed legal history in America forever. Yes. There was a debate for a while. The law in America extends inch by inch. There's very rarely a giant change in the law. For example, it used to be that if you broke into somebody's garage, you could not be convicted of burglary because the law was against breaking into someone's house. Until someone broke into someone's garage, got away with a lot of merchandise, and they decided to amend the law to, to be a, a place that you own and control. So that's what happened in the Lindbergh case. They, um, they charged him with murder and extortion, both of which he was guilty of, but there was no crime of kidnapping. And then when that became a relevant issue, the question was, well, the kidnapping statute was enacted because somebody took a sleeping child. And there was literally discussion about, did the baby have to be asleep when you snatched it? Well, of course, that's a ridiculous proposition, but that's just the incremental changes in the law. Exactly. Laws aren't written fully fledged out. Everything has to be right. worked out. It's like, you know, kidnapping. Is it kidnap? I think at the time they were arguing what the age restriction to call it kidnapping would be, which, as we know now, doesn't exist. That's correct. You could be 85 years old and it's still kidnapping. Yes, and you don't have to be a baby and you don't have to have been sleeping at the time of the crime. Now, I know you said you didn't want to uh, ruin the ending, but... Anybody who's worried about spoilers from a case from 1932, sorry. Yeah. It's on there. Sorry. Fuck you. (laughs) You deserve to have spoilers if it's to happen in 1932. (laughs) But, yeah, tragically, the baby was found in the woods, and the autopsy revealed that it had been killed that night more than likely. I mean, for what they could do at the time with the, with the forensics. Um, and you're right. I mean, it, 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 more than likely the death happened during the actual attempted uh, heist because it wasn't kidnapping yet, <laughs> technically, um, during the attempted heist. But yet it was still carried on as a ransom case, which is what makes it so interesting that they still pursued it as a kidnapping ransom case. Um, How did the the investigation into it go, and how did it lead to Hopman? Well, first of all, this was a very agonizing process. Because that poor family endured the receipt of 13 different ransom notes. That's a lot of dangling a carrot. And I can't feel too bad for Lindbergh because he had played this ostensible joke on his wife and the nanny 
by hiding the baby and saying he'd been snatched. So what happened was they found a, on the windowsill of the nursery, they found a demand letter. And it began, dear sir, exclamation mark, and went on to demand $50,000, which in 1932 was a big chunk of change. And they, the kidnappers wanted it in various denominations and said, we'll get in touch with you about where and when to deliver the money. Then the very next day, of course, word got out. And the whole world, all the news media came crashing down onto Hopewell, New Jersey. There was no such thing as protecting a crime scene, so they walked all over the site, which is particularly bad because on the night of the kidnapping, they found at least two sets of footprints in the mud under the window. They failed to measure the footprints. And subsequently, at trial, one of the state troopers had to admit, not only did he not know the size of the shoes to compare to the size that Hauptman wore, he didn't know whether the prints he saw were the right foot or the left foot. Now, I am not experienced in footprint analysis, but I can tell a right foot from a left foot. Let me just brag about that right now. Okay, uh, you know, Miss Smarty Pants. <laughs> um, so they, the next day, the whole world knew about it. And this odd man, a retired high school principal named Dr. John Condon, wrote a letter to a local paper. He lived in the Bronx, New York. And he wrote a letter and said, I am offering myself as the intermediary. And not only will I negotiate with the kidnappers, but I'll kick in $1,000 of my own cash over and above whatever ransom you receive. Now, that just begs the question, how big a room does it take to contain that kind of an ego? Well, yeah, because you remember you said it was a $50,000 ransom at the time. And I looked it up. I pulled up the wonderful inflation calculator where you can calculate what dollars of that are worth today. In 1932, $50,000 in 2023's money is $1,107,164.23. Yeah, but add to that another thousand bucks. And yeah, then really one thousand <laughs> that he's going to add was like saying, I'm going to add $22,143 out of my pocket. Right. So this is this is what I can't wrap my head around. I know that the kidnappers always say don't contact the police. The parents always do contact the police. But Lindbergh was extremely hesitant about bringing the police in, even though he reported it to the police that night. He called the local Hopewell Constabulary, and they brought in the state police. And it was decided that the state police, led by Superintendent Norman Schwarzkopf Sr., would 
conduct the real investigation and just rely on the FBI as a resource to conduct certain portions of the investigation. But Lindbergh wanted to deal with private citizens. So he asked some of his friends, can you try to find out how I can negotiate with these people, how I can find them and that sort of thing. That didn't work so well. So he did the next best obvious thing. He contacted some bootleggers. Now bootleggers do not necessarily know kidnappers. They don't obviously travel in the same circles. But no. he contacted some bootleggers and said, can you help me out? That didn't work out. And then the bloviating buffoon, Dr. John Condon, says, I'll take care of it. And Lindbergh agrees to this. A man with absolutely no investigatory experience at all. His only real experience with kids was that he is a high school principal, retired. But he thinks that he's the right guy to deal with hardened criminals who would be willing to kill a baby for money. Okay, you know, I'm trying to put myself in Lindbergh's shoes, although I, I'm not a racist, uh, homophobic, genocidal piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I like best about you. Yeah, but, all right, I can kind of, in 1932, I can kind of see wanting to go to bootleggers because maybe the mentality is these guys are criminals. They know other criminals. They know how criminals think. Eh, okay, you know, I'm bending over backwards to give you the benefit of the doubt there. I even kind of understand wanting to handle it on your own and not go to the police because you see that a lot in kidnapping and ransom cases where, you know, they fear if the authorities get involved, they'll kill the baby. So you handle it yourself to give the money and get your kid back. Again, I'm bending over backwards with the benefit of the doubt. But the condom thing makes no fucking sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, did it never occur to Lindbergh that – Condon, not being a trained police officer, might end up getting killed. And didn't it, for that matter, didn't it occur, occur to Condon that he might end up getting killed? I mean, we are not dealing with a nice group of people here. No. No, you're but dealing with desperate people at, at best, evil people at worst. And desperate people will go to any lengths, and as we know, evil people will too. So it's kind of, yeah. Well, Lindbergh agreed to it, and the kidnappers agreed to it. And they began to have a series of meetings. And one of the most important meetings was at a cemetery that Condon was told to go to, which I thought was eerie and creepy. He met with a man and apparently surprised him because he said, well, what's your name? And the guy had apparently thought out a story of how he was going to handle questioning, but it probably didn't occur to him he was going to be asked that question. And he said, my name is John. And after that, he began to be referred to as Cemetery John. So Cemetery John, about three or four days into the, the investigation, the kidnappers are getting nasty and getting irritated. And so they increased the demand to $70,000, which is a huge amount of money. Yeah, let's see how much that is. Go ahead, I'll, I'll calculate it. Well, 
the question is, if they were willing to take 50,000 three days before, isn't it a pretty good chance that they'll take 50,000 now? That's not how they saw it. So Condon continued to meet with Cemetery John and finally ended up, oh, you're going to love this. This unskilled, untrained negotiator who was meeting with bloodthirsty people <laughs> has Colonel Lindbergh drive out with him and stay in the car so he can overhear the man's voice. And he goes and he, he meets with the guy and he says, I can't give you the money until I know the baby is all right. So he says, he's all right. We'll bring you proof. What they brought him was the sleeping suit that the child was wearing on the night he was kidnapped. Now, that does not that is not proof of life by no. any stretch of the imagination. But as you said, these are desperate people with broken hearts. So. Condon goes back to the car. Says, you know, they produce this evidence that they at least are connected with the child somehow or another. Lindbergh gives him the money. Condon goes back to John and negotiates the number down to $50,000. Now, is this a time to be bargaining? No, and, and, and for the audience information, 70000 U.S. dollars at that point was $1,550,000 in today's money. So $1.5 million. Right, and it never occurred to them that Lindbergh wouldn't have that, and apparently he did. So he made that money available to them, and they gave him a note saying, you will find the baby who they said was being in good G-U-T-T-E condition and being watched by two ladies, apparently that, thinking that women can't commit crimes against children. Uh, and you will find him on the boat Nellie, N-E-L-L-Y, in Martha's Vineyard. So the very next day, Colonel Lindbergh gets up crack of dawn, gets in his little plane, and starts flying over Martha's Vineyard looking for the boat, which, as far as I know, was never found. And, of course, we know the child had been long dead by then. Yeah. Now, it's interesting that people really um, hone in on the spelling of certain words in the yes. letter, which is much like... Um, how all three of us are connected, you, Lauren, and myself, with like a, the Jack the Ripper case, where people will read into the spelling of certain words and letters that point to him being an Irishman or an American. Um, the that's all Boston. speculation. Oh, go ahead. The Dear Boss letter from that case. Yes, exactly. And it no. was believed that it was written by an American yeah, because there's Americanism. In England, you don't have bosses. You have master-servant relationships. But in America, we we have lots of bosses. So it was speculated that that's why they thought it was written by an American. Yeah, I have no idea why they wrote that letter to Bruce Springsteen, dear boss. <laughs> well, who wouldn't? 
But he would have the million dollars. Exactly. So we're back to, to um, they're asking for at first over a million dollars and then up to a million and a half dollars that first off, how would they know? I mean, yeah, everybody knows Lindbergh's a, a hero and he just built this mansion, but do they, would they really know that he would be able to have, and, and, and by the way, this was in cash folks. They wanted it in cash. In fact, he broke down the denominations. Yes. So they knew that this guy would have over a million dollars in today's money in cash at hand. But Lindbergh never said, you've got to give me time to get to the bank. No. So that supposition apparently was well-founded. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice? Must be. Uh, so... We got a great cast of characters going here with Cemetery John and Condon and, of course, the, the piece of shit Lindbergh himself. And I say that I'm not saying anything bad against the baby, folks. Please do not send no, me hate mail not. saying that I think the baby deserved it because his father was an asshole. I'm not saying that at all. What happened to this child is tragic. Doesn't change the fact that his father was an asshole. Anyway, continue. <laughs> well... An autopsy was conducted, and because the child had been lying four and a half miles from Lindbergh's house in the woods and was found purely by accident and not by investigation, face down in the mud, and it was, I don't want to gross anybody out, but it's clear that there, there had been animal activity in the area. So there was not an intact body. Mostly it was a skeletal remains. And they brought the child into the morgue for Lindbergh to identify it. And there was, thanks be to God, at least one leg left. I mean, there were only two, but one of his legs was left and Lindbergh identified him because the baby had had overlapping toes. And so Lindbergh examined the toes and said, yeah, that's him. See, now that's, it also shows you the caliber of people involved in this crime. That the way the body was found and then this poor child's remains were found. It almost appears that once they realized the child was dead, they literally just threw it away like trash. And continued on. But That's they were a happy. level of depravity that I, I, I can't even fathom. I'll tell you about depravity. Before they buried the child, they stopped and said to themselves, we're going to have to prove we've got him. And they took his little pajamas off. Oh, yeah. And then they buried him. It was revolting. It was just unbelievably cruel. And this was a this was a child who wasn't even two years old. That's correct. A sickly child who wasn't even two years old. Oh. But um, what's really interesting is because it was 1932, so we did have mass media in the United States uh, by way of of not only newspaper and telegraph but radio by this time yes it gripped the nation this was the front page everywhere 
This is what everybody was talking about, which also shows you the level of desperation on someone who would commit this crime because you had to know it would be such big news that everyone in the country is looking for you. Well, that's true. And another reason that people in America were so gripped by this particular, it's not just that someone's child was taken, which is nobody in the world can fail to be hurt and upset by that. Exactly. But this was, as P.G. Woodhouse put it, a little golden haired child. The baby literally had little ringlets. He was blonde, fair skinned, blue eyed. He was exactly what you would expect Charles Lindbergh's child to look like. Yeah, he was essential, essentially um, the Gerber. no disrespect meant, but Lauren, I guess the equivalent would be this was American royalty. Yes, yes. Or so the public viewed it. Oh, yeah, this was not just... You know, um, any child this would happen to is awful and tragic and horrible. But the magnitude of this was so much bigger because it was this child of American royalty. This was the, 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 the chosen child of one of the most famous men in the country, if not the most famous man in the country at the time. And universally loved and respected. Nobody deserves what Lindbergh went through. No. But in the mind of Americans at that time, he would deserve it less than anyone else. Yeah. Not to mention poor Mrs. Lindbergh, who we haven't even mentioned yet. Yes. She was the daughter of the United States ambassador to Mexico. Um, she had, she was the first witness at the trial and was brought in to testify to confirm that the crime had been committed where it was, but most of all to identify the child's pajamas. I mean, that, that must've been unbearable. One writer at the time, and I'm sorry, I forget who it was said that the woman seemed to have almost a halo around her when she took the stand. People were just, their breath was taken away by the sight of this grieving woman. Understandably. Oh, absolutely. Now, one interesting thing is that when the meeting took place in the cemetery, The man who had a German accent, by the way, which was also suggested by the spellings and construction of the ransom notes, asked a very strange question of Dr. Condon. He said, I could burn for this. And Condon says, what are you talking about? And the man said, what if the baby is dead? And then it suddenly occurs to him what he said, and Condon says, are you telling me the baby's dead? And he says, no, no, the baby's in good shape. Don't worry. He had almost blown his ransom right then and there. Yeah. Whew. 
So, oh, uh, yeah. It's just so disturbing, the whole case. Oh, it's, it's heartbreaking. I mean, poor Mrs. Lindbergh had to go through this twice. Once only because of her husband's cruel hoax, and it lasted only a few minutes. But then she had to go through it for real. Yeah. This is a woman who has truly suffered. And, and how was Charles reacting to all of this he that was we the, know of? He was in charge. Um, he had he tried to keep the state police from doing anything, and this is long after the state police had been brought in. He approved everything that was done. Now, you've seen shows about kidnappings where the cops say, no, you do it our way. We know what we're doing. And that's good advice, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. But Superintendent Schwarzkopf, who, yes, is Storman Norman's father. I was going to say, for those of you who f remember the name Schwarzkopf, yes, it is of that same family lineage. Yes, he ran everything by Lindbergh, and he became very resentful. Even though he called Lindbergh a very good friend, he became very resentful that both Lindbergh and Lindbergh's attorney were calling the shots on this investigation. Well, at that... I don't want to say that sounds suspicious, but that is kind of weird that you don't want to listen to the people who actually know what they're talking about and well, say, I'm going to let me and my lawyer handle it. His ego. his ego was as big as Dr. Condon's. It's a wonder anything was ever solved with these people being involved. And, and the question is, was it solved? So, <laughs> Well, I believe that it was. Um, there is, however, an interesting book that I am now going to, to buy because I just came across it in researching for today, in which a man has written that he knows who the real, or at least one person involved in the plot, and that was a man, a German immigrant named John Kroll, K-R-O-L-L. -L. Now, there was a police sketch developed from Condon and other people's descriptions. And to my mind, it looks somewhat like Bruno Hoffman. But when you see the picture of John Kroll next to the police sketch, it looks almost like the mirror image. Now, Kroll became suspicious, uh, suspicion turned to him, not during the course of this investigation, but only many years after Hauptmann was executed. The writer said, came across this story that his father had told him. His father had overheard a conversation, and it sounded like people plotting a kidnapping. And he told his son about it, and his son wrote a story, uh, wrote a book. And it sounds compelling, this Kroll character, some a poor immigrant, somehow has enough money to buy first-class passage on a luxury yacht for himself and his wife. He takes that boat trip 
shortly after Hauptman was arrested and then comes back to America shortly after Hauptman is executed. Now, the timing you can laugh at if you like, but where did that money come from? That's a lot of cash in the 1930s. Yeah. So let's see where the roads lead to Hauptman. Well, there was the police sketch, and as I said, I think a part of, I, I think to some extent it did look like Hauptman, but the biggest factor, and the government really caught a break here, was when they allowed the federal government to be involved, they do what the federal government does best, and that's bring in experts and use sophisticated testing and so forth, and they brought in the IRS. These guys know about money. And they said, the president has already ordered that what's called gold certificates, which is American currency based on the gold standard, that all of that money had to be turned into the United States government by X date. So the IRS says, look, <clears throat> let's pay the ransom in gold certificates. Mm-hmm. Because since they're all being returned to the American government, they'll be easier to trace, which was a pretty sharp thing to do. Incredibly sharp. And talk about how little people can do big things. Hauptman drove his Dodge sedan, which was later testified to was in the area of the Lindbergh house a month before the kidnapping into a gas station and paid for gas with a $10 gold certificate. <coughs> the man at the filling station, if you remember that old term, thought, well, you don't see any of these gold certificates much anymore. He wrote down on the gold certificate the license plate. The IRS put out the word to all bankers, we want to see whatever gold certificates are turned into you. And a sharp-eyed teller who had been on the lookout was just as clever as the filling station owner. And they spotted strange writing on a gold certificate. And they said, this may be something. Well, it was something. It was Bruno Hoffman's license plate number. They traced the license plate to New York, and that is where Hoffman lived. They put his house under surveillance, and next thing you know, they arrest him. They search his house. They find wood that was exactly the same type used in the ladder. And Hoffman, by the way, was a carpenter. Apparently not a very good one, but he was I was, was going to say, carpenter. not a great one. <laughs> um, they found... About $13,000 in cash in his house. Some of it hidden under floorboards. Some of it hidden in a shellac can. Now, this is an example of real genius. Hide it in a can that has the residue of an accelerant in it. Um, so they find all this money. And Hauptman explains, well... I have a friend named Isidore Fish, F-I-S-C-H, and he recently returned to Germany, and he asked me to hold on to his things for him, 
Well, he didn't ever ask Fish, why do you want me to hold on to a can of shellac? No, I mean, what's a can of shellac between friends? Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you how many cans of shellac I have at other people's houses right now. I'm still holding that can of shellac for Lauren for when she comes to the States. Yeah, and we appreciate it, you know. Um, <laughs> but he said, I didn't look in it, but when, but I finally looked in it, and I took a little money, and then he fesses up, and he says, and I spent it, but I didn't tell my wife. <laughs> that and means it was on booze. You can take it one of two ways. One, he's protecting his wife from criminal charges. Or two, he thinks nothing of spending all his money on himself and not sharing it with his wife. But he didn't go on a big spending spree like Kroll did. He spent it at the local grocery store. He bought himself a pair of shoes, things of that nature, which is really kind of poignant. That's another thing that argues in favor of being Kroll, because Hauptmann only had about a third of the money. Yeah, where's the rest of it? Exactly. Uh, Lauren, before we go on to the conviction and trial, do you have any questions? Yeah, I, I can never work out why. Why they thought it was a good idea. Was it to expand on the April Fool's joke, or was it? For some reason, I, I mean, it just seems crazy that, you know, I do think that um, Lin, Lindbergh was behind it because he already did it once, even though it was a joke. So I think personally, I think he it was him. <laughs> but well, why? I, I don't I don't know. I think that what Brian said is is correct, and that is that. You do want to comply with the people that are holding your baby. You do not want to tick them off. Now, I'll give him that one. I'm sure that I would be tempted to ignore the cops for a while if I were in that horrible circumstance. But I also think that Lindbergh, who thinks he's better than two-thirds of the planet because he has white skin, and is possibly the most popular man in America is just so brilliant that he can outfox these guys. Yeah, he was a narcissist. We got to yeah. remember. And I'm sure that Dr. Condon was fairly persuasive too. Uh, although how he could be, I don't know. I, just imagine if you're a police officer, there's been a horrible crime, and someone that you never heard of who has no police training at all calls you up and says, I'm going to take over this case for you. It's more than insulting. It's daft. Well, and, and he was, by all regards, Condon was a complete and total what we would call in today's parlance a media whore. True. He was an attention seeker. He was over the top flamboyant with bullshit most of the time. I mean, Lauren, do you want to hear what I find as horrible as this is one of the most repulsive and disgusting aspects of this case, Lauren? Would you, would you like me to tell you? Yes. Afterwards, 
Condon turned it into a vaudeville act and went on the vaudeville stage. That was her. Well, that is horrific. But considering that they were having at the time of the Whitechapel murders and everybody was, you know, everybody, the the mood was heightened. Everybody was on their guards that they were having waxworks of these murders. It's not surprising that they would do it. But it's ridiculously awful. Um, I can't believe that wasn't censored, though. Mm. Because even in the, you know, one of um, the aspects of, you know, American history is that there there was a higher level of censorship than, say, in Britain over things. Nope. Condon took it to the stage and was the star of it. And we know for a fact that he had a great sense of a flair for the dramatic from the way that he testified in court. And I don't want to get too far ahead of you, Brian, but he did have an interesting statement in court that really brought the spotlight down on him. Yeah. In fact, I've already kept you longer than we initially said we would. So let's go right (laughs) to the, to the arrest and then to the trial because the trial, believe it or not, folks, the trial is as wacky as everything else. It truly is. There were some wonderful moments. And as a former newspaper reporter, I have to tell you, I would have eaten it up with a spoon. (laughs) One of the factors that were in favor of the defense, and the defense had plenty to work with here. In fact, in my little mock trial, I actually got Bruno Hauptmann acquitted. Um, Again, braggart. Well, I can't deny it. I am honest. Uh, (laughs) So... um, Condon was brought in to identify Hauptman out of a lineup. Hauptman, spe- I mean, Condon specifically said that is not the man. He didn't say I'm not sure. He didn't say it could be. He didn't say it was dark out. He said that is not the man. When he gets on the witness stand, they ask him, Do you see Cemetery John in this room? Yes, I do. Where is he? And he points to him and he says, it is Bruto Richard Hoffman. (laughs) And the the cross-examiner said, well, how do you explain the fact that you couldn't identify him at the lineup? And he said, I wanted to withhold my declaration of identity. In other words, he said, I want to be a big deal in the trial. Yeah, I want the attention, not in the police lineup. That's what it was. Um, it was it was really astonishing. And then they brought in a man who testified. He was, I think, 94 years old at the time. But he testified that he had seen someone in a Dodge sedan. Again, we now know that, that is Hauptman's car driving around right outside of the Lindbergh property a month before, and he happened to have a ladder in the back of his sedan. Now, I don't know if you ever go anywhere without your ladder, but it just seems to me that it makes good sense to always have one with you. Look, Janice, Janice, remember, I'm six foot five. (laughs) You're teeny tiny. You need the ladder everywhere you go. <laughs> well, my husband's 6'2", and we have an agreement. He reaches the things on the top shelf, and I reach on the bottom. 
<laughs> so but yeah, a sedan with a ladder in it. That's weird. He said, you know, I absolutely saw the man again. Do you see him in the courtroom today? Yes, I do. And he points at him. And when he does that, the lights go off in the courtroom. Now, tell me that isn't good stuff. At which point the defense attorney stands up and he says, that is the Lord's judgment against a liar. <laughs> I mean, that's terrific stuff. You can't make this stuff up. No. And if you did make it up, they wouldn't publish it because they'd say it was too incredible. Unless it was really Randolph Hearst. That's right. So there were some lovely moments in that trial. Oh. And, and the trial lasted five weeks, and it took less than a day to return a guilty verdict. Exactly. That's the crazy thing to me, was that... Look, for the most part, the evidence was very circumstantial. And yet, the jury deliberated for less than a day and came back with a unanimous guilty verdict. Which, to me, says it, there's no way it wasn't a tainted jury pool. Everyone in the country knew this story. And the sympathy was with Lindbergh. They were going to find... If the fucking Pope was on trial, they would have found him guilty for it. Well, did he have an alibi for that night? That's what I want to know. That's true. But I have to take exception with what you're saying. Circumstantial evidence is what a defense attorney rails against when they've got nothing else. Because circumstantial evidence just means there's no DNA, there's no eyewitness. Everything is made of circumstantial evidence. Because people don't commit crimes in front of other people. So you have to use the circumstances to convict them. But look at the circumstances that had been dealt to this prosecutor. And by the way, it was prosecuted by the attorney general of New Jersey himself. And this was the first criminal trial he had ever taken. And he hit it out of the park. For, partly for the reason that you said. But he has... Hauptmann, as a German, we know that the that Cemetery John is a German. He had written a note saying, um, you will find the baby on the boat, B-O-A-D. Now, one can forgive an immigrant for misspelling a matter, but David Wilentz, the attorney general, says to Hauptmann, Spell boat, and Hauptman, having been properly prepared by his attorney, said B-O-A-T. And Molins went over and picked up a ledger that was taken from Hauptman's house, and he rifles through it, and he points to a word, and he says, is this your handwriting? Yes, it is. What does this say? And he says, boat. And he says, how does it spell? It was spelled B-O-A-D just as it was in the in the ransom note. That's pretty good evidence. They yeah, have... You going to give me is. that one? I'll, I'll give you that one. They also found John Condon's phone number and address written in pencil 
on a door jam in Houtman's house. That's a big one. I like that one. They found $31,000 of the ransom money in Houtman's house. They were able to establish that the lumber used to build Houtman's attic also was used to build the ladder up to the second floor of the Lindbergh house. That's not, not bad stuff. I am not denying that he was involved. I, I, I've said I've maintained all along that I believe he was involved. I just do not think he was alone like the jury decided he was. Well, the jury did not decide he acted alone. True. You're right. You're right. The jury was given no other options. Now, fortunately for Hauptman, his alibi, Isidore Fish, had been a good enough friend to not only return to Germany, but to promptly die after he did so. <laughs> What? Well, good friend. I mean, I just wouldn't have done it, you know, but that's extremely gracious in my way of thinking. Yeah. So, and then nobody had ever heard of John Crowell at that time, so he wasn't brought in. And they had a, a man who could identify a Dodge sedan, and a Dodge sedan was the car that was filled up with gasoline with a $10 gold certificate on which the Philly station owner wrote the license plate number. That's a circumstance towards guilt. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. You don't have to, like, you know, have a hard time connecting those dots. Yeah, I think the jury absolutely made the right decision. But my question is, as a trial attorney, as a historian, as someone who's had the benefit of looking over all the evidence, looking over the transcripts, looking over the court records, looking over everything, you know, 190 years later, what do you think the investigation really missed? They Whether missed intentionally or unintentionally. Oh. I'm sorry? Whether intentionally or unintentionally, what I don't did they think, miss? I don't think that there was any malfeasance in, intentionally done. I believe that this is one of the most solid criminal cases I've ever seen since O.J. Simpson. I mean, in O.J. Simpson's trial, they were able to prove that he was literally the only person on the entire planet who could have done the crime. Now, they didn't how'd have that, DNA. How'd up. that turn out for you, Janice? Yeah, I believe it worked out all right for him. Yeah. Um, but I have been disappointed at his lack of success in finding the real killers, which he pledged to do. Apparently, the real killer is on the golf course somewhere. All I know is that, say what you want about OJ, I'm from Buffalo, New York. He's still one of the greatest Bills that ever lived. <laughs> You're way out of my depth at this point. That's, a, that's when people ask me, what do you think about OJ? I'm like, oh, he was Hall of Famer. Yeah. No, but you're right. I mean, the, the, the overwhelming mountains of evidence against these, uh, against Houghton, he, he had to be found guilty. But my question is, what did the investigation lack? Because it appears 
appears now, now I say appears because we don't know for sure, but it appears so obvious he did not act alone, and yet no one else was 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 convicted. That's quite true, and I don't know how the decision was was made that this is the guy. You know, notice the article, not a guy, but the guy. Yeah. There had to have been some discussion of did he act alone. I don't know. Uh, maybe knowing Lindbergh, as we've discussed today, he may have said to himself, you've got the guy. I can't take any more. My wife certainly can't take any more. Let's convict this guy and be done with it. Which sentiment I can understand because his wife had clearly suffered horribly. And there's no evidence to suggest that Lindbergh did it, only to suggest that he has a very sick sense of humor. No, exactly. And there are a lot of people who say, and I'm not just using that as the line that people are saying that we hear so often today. No, you can, you can look this up, folks. Um, a lot of amateur criminologists and people have speculated that Lindbergh was involved for reasons such as how did Houghton know they were actually going to be there that day? They weren't supposed to be. Um, how did he know exactly where the child's room was in this mansion? Um, someone on the inside had to have knowledge of this. Um, one thing that commonly comes up with with amateur criminologists is that, you know, Lindbergh's obses obsession with eugenics. Yes. And perfection in people. And here he is. His offspring is, quote unquote, by his standards, damaged. Yes. It's an embarrassment to him. Well, it also would have been difficult for him to continue to pursue criminal cases against other Germans. There was never any question that the perpetrator was a German. Nope. We have the ransom note from the very first day. It sounds like a foreign national, which is fine. But Condon said, if you believe anything he said, and I have no reason not to, I mean, he may have been pompous, but I don't think he was a liar. Condon said he was a German. So I don't think that Lindbergh was really interested in making any more Germans look bad. No. In, in an era when America was really anti-German. I mean, we had finished the First World War. Yeah. And Lindbergh was not as anti-German as America was. That is quite true. Uh, he, was, he made anti-Semitic speeches, and um, the reaction was so violent that um, he was scheduled to make a speech three days after Pearl Harbor and thought better of it. He was going to make it in Madison Square Garden, I believe, which was a lot of folks, but he didn't do that. Another wonderful courtroom moment that I forgot to mention is that they called to testify the baby's nanny, Betty Gow, the Scottish lady I mentioned. And she was grilled mercilessly on cross-examination, which is what you have to do. Absolutely. I don't fault the defense attorney for that, but he beat her up pretty well. And after she got off of the stand, she fainted. That was another delicious courtroom moment. We also should 
recall, I mean, Agatha Christie wrote a fabulous book about the Lindbergh case. And she pointed out about all the other people who were hurt by this. And one of them, of course, was Violet Sharp, the maid who worked in the house. She was questioned and they didn't like her answers. So they were bringing her back to question her again. So she killed herself. Shortly after she killed herself, they established unquestionably that she had an alibi. Yeah. So this is one of those pebbles in the water thing. The ripples just go on and on and on. And, and like I said, we've been going quite a while. But I want to wrap this up with, I think what a lot of people don't realize when they talk about the Lindbergh case and Charles Lindbergh himself is that he lived into the 1970s. Yes. You know, our lives overlapped with Charles Lindbergh. Well, not yours, Lauren. You're you're too young for that. But most of our lives have overlapped with Charles Lindbergh. This is an ancient history. How did he and his wife live out the rest of their lives after this? Very quietly. They moved, I believe, to Connecticut. Um. And I don't know of anything else really. You know, I, as I said, he was made a, a general by Dwight Eisenhower. So he didn't just disappear. He also was involved in inventing with a, a doctor uh, a machine that would keep internal organs perfused when they were moved outside of the body. It was a, a precursor of the heart-lung machine. So he wasn't idle. He did a lot of stuff. Yeah, and, you know, he didn't remain the pop culture figure, but he remained prominent. Well, he went on to run for, well, to try to build up a, a run for president. Yeah. You and know, and uh, Philip Roth, a great book, i got to admit. He also allegedly fathered several children in Germany. Seven children by three women. So he got around. Yeah, he was not a lonely fellow when it was all over. Yeah, he, like Sarah just said, uh, duh, of course he got around. He had an airplane. Plus, I think he had uh, four children with Anne. So this is a guy who does not know the meaning of the word protection. <laughs> Or he just wants to be fruitful and multiply. Well, that's not exactly the way I would have said it to him, but um, <laughs> <laughs> you understand. I, I definitely understand. Lauren, what do you think about the kidnapping, the trial, the conviction, and the whole case for, as an outsider, as a foreigner? Yeah, that's why I've been listening and not interjecting as much as I would like, um, because it's been fascinating to listen to, to you talk about a part of American history, which isn't well known to us outside of America. I think that it's just crazy. I mean, it would if if this was a uh, an episode, it sounds like an episode of Murder, She Wrote or Quincy or something like that. It, it doesn't sound like it's something that could have tangibly happened, but it did. Exactly. And it's just it's bizarre. It just sounds like something out of a out of a novel you know, and 
I don't mean to go too far when I say this, but it just seems like something like a horror comedy. Like well, it's just so far fetched and so. You know, it's interesting, Lauren, that you say it seems like something out of a novel because just two years after this, uh, as Janice pointed out, Agatha Christie used this case. Um, you've read Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, the whole kidnapping of Daisy Armstrong is based on the Lindbergh kidnapping and trial. Is that what she's uh, is that what she's saying she would have liked to have happened to Limbaugh himself? Have everybody uh, uh, not, I'm not putting words in anybody's mouth. <laughs> oh no, I can't say too much because I'll just um ruin the end of that and no, don't want to do that. But do you have any questions about um the way things were handled for Janice? We so we have the legal expert on. Um I think for me, it would have been interesting how um, when you tried it, when you recreated the trial, um, were you were you using historic law or were you using modern day law? And how much has it changed from the oh, 1920s to modern? I will confess to you that I was too lazy to go and, and look up the criminal statutes that were in effect in the 1930s. But I didn't really argue it under modern day law either. Uh, I attacked witnesses. Um, once I got a John Condon on the stand, I was pretty much home free. I mean, why would he bother? One of the questions that was put to Condon when he was on the witness stand was, didn't it ever occur to you that a criminal mastermind might have taken out an ad in the paper or written a letter to the, the Bronx Home News? offering to be the intermediary in all this just so that he could control the investigation and handle the money? And that's a good question. That's a damn good question. Very good question. So, uh, I mean, I, I was served up a lot. I didn't know about John Crowell at that time. Uh, I would have I would have had the whole case built around him. But I, you know, I did talk about the fact that there was a man who fled to Germany and, you know, we can't cross-examine him now. We can't bring him into the investigation. Things like that. Things that just sound too weird but are true in this case is what I built it on. It is so just, like Lauren said, it's so bizarre. A, a, a good scriptwriter could come up with all this. That is true. But as I said, if you wrote this as a novel and you weren't Agatha Christie, which is one of the things she really had going for her, the re the publishers might reject it and say, you know, you can't suspend belief that much. I'm willing to meet you halfway there for the sake of art. But really now, you know, a retired principal offering to do the negotiating for the most famous child in America? I don't think so. And speaking of novels, let's hear a little bit about your upcoming novel before we call this a show. Well, thank you very much. Very kind of you. It's called To Prove a Villain, which is a line taken from Richard III, which is truly about a villain, as we all know. Oh, yeah. Um, and it involves the murder which didn't really happen, spoiler alert, of Karl Marx's youngest daughter. 
I would love to talk with you sometime about her life and her work. She was one of the most fascinating characters I've ever come across. And I've heard of John Condon. <laughs> so this is telling you this woman is interesting. Um, and I just found out about her and I was just captured by what a great story she had to tell. And so I, I created a novel about her, uh, about the woman who was the protagonist in Goulston Street, my first novel, uh, is feels the need to investigate that story as well for reasons I won't bore you with now. And so she investigates the death of Eleanor Marks. And um, I hope it, it has a satisfying conclusion. And, and when, are we, when can we expect this? Um, probably early next year. Well, you're coming back on to talk about it. Oh, well, that's very kind of you to suggest. Oh, you see, you don't have a choice. We're not even asking you. We're telling you. Okay. Well, yes, we are. We're telling you. Absolutely, we are. Oh, thank you very, very much. This has been a delight. I, I just, I so, I I love talking to you so much. I wish we did more often. I don't. I'm, I'm a hermit, you know. And outside of working the show, I really don't do anything anymore. But, no, you have to come back on more often, and we love you so much. And anytime, anything you want to talk about, you are more than welcome to come on this show. Well, thank you. That's very nice. I do have some ideas, and I will get in touch with you about them. Absolutely. And, Lauren, any other last statements, questions, comments before we call it a show? I just want to say how lovely it's been to have you back on, and it's been great to talk to you about a case that I knew very little of, but now I want to know more about. Thank you very much. I've had a blast. It's been wonderful. All right. So from the great city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, thank you, Janice. And from Brian in Buffalo, and with me as always. Lauren from Swansea. Good night. Good night. So long. Pull down my pants and finally relax my weary buttocks upon the toilet seat.